Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, grace and peace. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. May you use me as an instrument to play your tunes this morning. Lord, bless us in the hearing of your word. Amen. When I was in college, uh, I interviewed an old Dutch couple who had grown up in the Netherlands before World War II. And uh, the the woman in this couple had not grown up in a Christian household, but her house had been near an old church. And the old church had played this lovely music every Sunday morning, and she loved that music. She, She loved music all her life. And so as a little girl, she asked her mom, she said, what do I need to do to go to that church? I just want to hear that music. I want to sing that music. What do I need to do? And back in those days, the church had three offerings. And the mother thought you needed three offerings to go to that church. So she said, you need three offerings, you can go to that church. So the girl, each week, this little girl, would find the equivalent of three pennies. And she would go to the church and she'd put a penny in each offering so that she could sing that music of the church. And in that church, she met the man who would become her husband. And through the music of that church, she eventually became a Christian. I want you to think about that story this morning as we talk about Psalm 96, because in Psalm 96, we're called upon to sing a new song. And this call to sing a new song, it's not unique to Psalm 96. It shows up all over the Psalms and all over the Old Testament. And almost every time that it shows up, it is not local or inward directed. It is global. It's outward directed. We're told in verse 3, to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. 
The psalm reaches out to the families of the peoples and invites them to come into his courts. The great Jewish literary scholar and translator Robert Alter writes this about the, the psalm. He says, The perspective of this poem is decidedly global rather than national. All the inhabitants of the earth are enjoined to celebrate God's kingship. In Revelation, we get a glimpse of that kingship and that celebration when all the nations and tongues and tribes of all the peoples come together and they sing the song of Moses by the Sea of Crystal. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach on Revelation this morning. (laughs) That is above my pay grade. Uh, We're going to focus today on Psalm 96. But today, I want to keep our focus on what that means to sing a new song. Because I think it raises several questions for us. The first question it raises for us is, if we're meant to sing a new song, what are the old songs that we have been singing? The second What is a new song to the Lord, and what enables us to sing it? And the third is, what comes of the new songs that we sing? So first, what are the old songs? There are a couple ways to interpret uh, that call to sing a new song. It could mean, stop singing the old songs and start singing something new. In other words, you need to change your life. You need to change your tune. The second meaning is not so much about alteration as it is about creative continuation. Uh, The word that's translated new here can also be translated as fresh, fresh songs. Sing a fresh song to the Lord. Uh, As Lamentations says, the compassions of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we sing. I think both senses of this word are important, and I want to begin with that first sense, that that, that idea that we we might have old songs we need to stop singing in order to sing something new. We get a powerful sense of what those old songs might be in verses 4 and 5 of this psalm. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look and follow along. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The old songs are the songs we sing to the idols in our lives. And just to get a clearer sense of what this means, it helps to know a little bit more about that word that gets translated as idols there. The word there in Hebrew is elalim, which puns on Hebrew words for not and God. They are literally not gods. So Alter translates the verse this way, for all the gods of the people are ungods, but the Lord made the heavens. In Calvin's commentary on this psalm, he translates this as vanity and naught. They are things of extreme nothingness. Elohim plays off the word for the Lord in Hebrew, which is Elohim. Elohim. So as one commentator puts it, we could translate the verse this way, These mighty beings are mighty useless. The problem, though, is that they're not exactly useless, or they're not only useless. The problem is that they're worse than useless. The same word, Elohim, appears in Zechariah, and there it's used to describe a false shepherd who tears and devours his own flock. The old songs are the songs we sing when we devote our lives to dangerous and worthless idols, these ungods who tear us apart. In that sense, the question for us that's raised by Psalm 96 is rather simple. To whom do you sing? What are the songs that shape your life? What ungods in your own way of life lead you away from the true God, the Lord who made the heavens? 
We are each of us tempted into old songs, even as we are called to sing something new. So let me just give you an example from my own life. George Stulak, who many of you know, runs faculty ministry in this area, and he's in the habit of asking us professors, what is the greatest temptation that you face in academia? Each of us has our own answer, but this is mine. I face the temptation to rise for the sake of rising, to make a great deal of myself, to work for my own ego and stature and place and name. Pride, quite simply, is my temptation, and a sense that my worth is measured by my work. And for these reasons, I can all too easily fall into comparing myself to others and nurturing jealousy and envy for the accomplishments of others. Academia lends itself to this false god in countless ways precisely because we're asked to get ahead. We're told to rise. That's the point. There can be good aspects to this ambition, but all too often it means making our work about ourselves. It means asking what this work is going to do for me rather than what it does for others. Make a name for yourself. Compare yourself. Get ahead. Rise. Get your stature up. Get your place up. This is the ungod. And let me tell you, it is a shepherd that can devour me. Vanity is precisely the right word for this idol. And the more I follow its voice, the more it tears me apart. That's me. What about you? What are the temptations in your life? What ungods do you find yourself all too often singing to? We need to identify these idols. We need to know what songs shape our lives. For each and every one of these, Elalim is a shepherd that devours its sheep. And the more we live our lives for them, whatever they might be, the more they will tear us apart. The true God, the Lord who made the heavens, is nothing like these false gods. We get a glimpse of the extreme difference in that Matthew 20 passage that we read for today, where Jesus compares the lords of this world, the ones who lord it over others, to the true Lord who makes of himself a servant to all. There is a king whose glory and splendor we cannot stand before. And what do we know about this king, this true God, who gives us cause for a new song? Consider the song of Paul in Philippians 2. Christ, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. This is the king we follow. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the king that we worship. This is the shepherd we follow, and this shepherd does not devour us or tear us apart. This shepherd seeks us out and lays down his very life for us. This is why we sing. The call to sing a new song is the invitation to turn from the ungods who would tear us apart to the true God who gave his very life to save our own. For me, the songs that we see in Scripture all of which follow on God's grace and redemption, are 
precisely for me the texts that convince me again and again of the truth of Christ. What we see Paul singing there in Philippians is an echo of the songs that we hear from Moses and Hannah and Mary and Zechariah and all of these others who sing. God overthrows the structures of power in this world. He empties himself and exalts the humble. He values the seemingly valueless. He turns the world upside down. The meek shall inherit the earth. These songs are so otherworldly that they seem like they must have come from another world, like they couldn't possibly be human inventions. It's a reality beyond our own, a God who in his might and majesty pours himself out for others and dies on a cross as a criminal for the very sinners who nailed him there. It's so unreal that it cannot be other than real. It's an otherworldliness precisely fitted to the desperate needs of this world. It opens a way of salvation and restoration that causes all creation to rejoice. A king who came to serve, a God who gave his life. This is why we sing. So what then is the new song that we sing to this king of all the world? Well, first and foremost, it's a response. We sing because we have been given cause to sing. Something has been done. And what has been done is an act of redemption that gives us reason to rejoice. So after Moses and Miriam pass through the Red Sea, they sing a new song. When Hannah is given a child after all of her prayers, she sings a new song. When Mary is told by the angel Gabriel what's about to happen to her and to the whole world, she sings. The same thing happens with Zechariah and with so many others. The site of redemption is the starting point of a new song. In each new song, we do exactly as the psalmist says, we proclaim the Lord's salvation day after day and declare his marvelous deeds among all peoples. To know this salvation is to understand and embrace the fundamental point of the psalm, that God is king. We've already seen that this is a king like no other, a king who lays down his life for his subjects, but he is still king. He is still our sovereign. And the reason he lays down his life for others is that justice demands some judgment. We cannot pass lightly over the place where this psalm ends. It ends by celebrating the fact of coming judgment. This king is coming soon, and what he's bringing with him is a judgment of the whole earth. Now, if you get to that point in the psalm, you think, all right, let's sing. It's not exactly where you might end up, right? God is coming, and he's bringing his judgment. If you're like me, this does not lead to an immediate sense of celebration. This might cause you, in fact, to tremble just a little bit. But before we tremble, it's good to remember how many people day in and day out long for the coming judgment of the Lord. I'll never forget a comment Pastor Thurman once made to us. He said, when you preach on the coming judgment of the Lord in a place of poverty and hardship and abuse and oppression, the people in that congregation say, amen, hallelujah, how soon? And when you preach on the coming judgment in a place of relative wealth and uh, 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 comfort, the people say, "Uh, how soon was that again? Uh, When's that coming? The voice of Psalm 96 voices the voice of all those all over the world who want the Lord's judgment, and they want it now. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Unlike all the other kings we have known, this king will judge the world in righteousness and truth. Aligning ourselves with a longing for that justice 
is one way to participate in the singing of this new song. Do we long for the justice and the judgment of God? How badly do we long for it? At the same time, how could we not feel a little bit of fright at the possibility of the coming judgment of the Lord? It's not wrong to tremble. In fact, the psalmist tells us that we're going to tremble. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, the psalmist says. Tremble before him, all the earth. If there's one thing we know about the holiness of God is that it brooks no unholiness, no impurity, no dishonor, no sin stands in the sight of God. So how can we, sinners all, stand in the presence of God? How can we not tremble at the judgment of God? I'll speak for just myself here, but when my soul is laid bare before the great and mighty God, it will not be a pretty sight. The judgment, we might think, is no cause to sing. Well, it wouldn't be, of course, but for the king's son, the suffering servant who stands in my place, who covers me, who gives me a righteousness and a purity I could possess in no other way. So listen now to me about how how this judgment and how this justice is, is discussed in the first of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah 42. So these are the first nine verses of our Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. These are the first nine verses. This is the first servant song in Isaiah. And what does verse 10 say in response to this? Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. Each new song we sing springs from an act of redemption that is at the same time an act of justice for this world. I need redemption from myself, and I have supplied that salvation by the blood of Christ, shed for my sins, making me whole again each day. I depend wholeheartedly on him, the servant king. The main temptation in my job is to boast vainly in myself. But what other worldly wisdom do we hear from Scripture? For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What is a new song? It is first and foremost a response to grace. But, but... And this is the mysterious part. That response does not have a set pattern. It doesn't have a script or a structure or a set way of response. Some of you by now might be wondering about all this singing. Some of you have 
incredible voices, beautiful voices. I have heard you sing. It's incredible. Some others will say in other congregations are less given the gift of singing. And when they sing the praises of the Lord, they cause me to tremble in not such a great way. (laughs) We're not all given the gift of song. But we are all given gifts. And it's with these gifts that we make the music of the church. The psalmist calls on us to proclaim the Lord's salvation day after day, and that happens in countless ways. A many varied music, which ideally pours out from our windows and doors and invites others in. This music often makes me stop and marvel at the majesty of God. I have talked often in this church before about how I am supported and humbled by you, by the body of Christ. But today I want to take a moment and just marvel with you at the almost mischievous beauty of this scheme of the Lord's. For what does God do? He calls on us to sing a new song, but he does not provide the words. There's an open, eager element of creativity left to his own creation. It's as though God has pulled up a chair and excitedly leaned in to see how we're going to respond. This is not a mistake. This is no accident. This is the way it has been from the very beginning. In Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth and the sea and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the living creatures and all the places of the earth. And then he creates human beings in his image. He creates them. And what does he say to them? He says, you name the animals. This is an incredible verse. Listen to this verse. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The picture we have here is of a God who looks with eager anticipation and delight at the creativity of his own creation. This is a God who wants to see what new songs we're going to sing. And what songs do we sing? Some of us build houses and restore homes and shelter souls. Some of us make art, and others of us make an art gallery so the rest of us can see it. Some initiate a women's shelter in our basement, and others serve sick people all over the world. Counselors counsel, and teachers teach, and gardeners create new growth. And the parents among us, the full-time parents among us, do all of these things and more. This is the church's music. And insofar as the music we make make participates in the restoration of all things, it rises as new songs to the king of all creation, a proclamation of salvation day after day. Which leads me finally and briefly to the last question I asked at the opening. What comes of the songs that we sing? Here I want to note just one thing from that passage in Revelation. In that vision... The saints and the angels and the peoples from every nation and tongue, they gather together by the Sea of Crystal and they sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of Moses. I'll be honest, I totally forgot that Moses ever sang a song. But it's right there in Exodus 15. And the Lord, whatever my bad memory might be, the Lord does not forget. His memory is secure. The song of Moses remains. It sings on all the way to the Sea of Crystal. There's an extraordinary implication that's buried in this scene, but consistent with what we're told throughout Scripture. When we labor for the king, our labor is not in vain. Each new song that's sung in response to redemption remains. It's never lost. 
In Hebrews 6, we hear this. God is not unjust. He will not forget your love and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Gordon Carlson, your work in St. Louis and around the world, it is not forgotten. It is not lost. Christy and Ashley and Andrea and Kyle and Noah and all of you counselors and chaplains and ministers who sit with the sick and the dying and the hurt and the sorrowful and give them a word of wisdom that heals and restores, it is remembered. It remains. Josh and Pete and John and Christine and Eric and Emily and Dave and everyone here who teaches. When we serve the students with knowledge and wonder and truth, we serve in the kingdom of God. That service is not in vain. Brian and Jeff and all of you who build, who create, who restore, who make whole and bring shalom, your labors are not lost. We serve in schools and in banks and in financial institutions and stores and homes. We make food, we clean, we tend vineyards, we host, we heal, we house, we reach out, we bring in, we listen. Some of us literally make songs. To be sure, not all of our labors are of the heavenly sort. Not everything will last. We are sinful, fallen creatures, and as I've already confessed, we all too often use our hands and minds and hearts to serve false gods. That service will pass away. But where we serve in the kingdom of God, our labor is not forgotten. Wherever and however we restore and make whole and bring shalom, we proclaim the salvation of our Lord and participate in the building up of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will have no end. We know what this kingdom feels like. Each of us has experienced it in our own way. For me, for example, I have sat in Neil's house with warm food and warm friends on a winter's night as a band played, and in that moment of wholeness, I knew a sense of fullness. I could catch there a glimpse of coming glory. You have caught that glimpse, too. You know what that feeling feels like. You have seen it in your own ways and in your own places. You've tasted this. These moments of fullness give us a glimpse of the coming glory. It's not just the song of Moses that's sung by the Sea of Crystal. It's every new song that's sung and made in response to the grace we've experienced from God's redemption. We might forget, but the Lord remembers. The new songs we sing in response to grace, they stay. According to legend, uh, Martin Luther once said, if I believed the world were to end tomorrow, I would still plant a tree today. It's unclear if he actually ever said this. But I think that there's something deeply profound and theologically sound about it. I'm not going to put Susanna on the spot, but I feel as though she might respond in the same way. If she were told that the world would end tomorrow, she might plant a tree today. And if she did, that tree would be growing by the Sea of Crystal tomorrow. It would be part of that forest of trees that the psalmist speaks about in verses 12 and 13, the trees that sing for joy at the coming of the Lord. For the kingship of God is over all creation, and the salvation of the Lord is the restoration of all things. This is the vision and the invitation of Scripture. We're called to turn away from the ungods who are tearing us apart to the true God who will restore all things, to participate with him in that restoration. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. What are the songs that shaped your life? Are they new songs of salvation? Or are they songs that are sung to idols, the ungods who devour us? We have cause to sing anew. There is grace held out for us, a redemption from our sins through the death and resurrection of Christ. It's offered freely and intended for all, and it leads in the end to the salvation and the restoration of all things, so that the heavens are glad, the earth rejoices, the sea roars, the fields exult, and the very trees sing for joy. This is the future, and we're asked to join it. God waits with eager anticipation to see how we're going to respond. He pulls up a chair. He leans in and looks to see what new songs we're going to sing. And the songs we raise in response to that grace are the music of the church, the harmony of all of our callings, bringing fullness and wholeness and shalom. Let us each, in our own way, look to our lives and sing new songs together in such a way that others will ask, as one little girl once asked her mom long ago, what is that music, and how can I be a part of that? Come, Lord Jesus, and help us to sing. Amen.